Hello, and welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Mike, today's guest on the podcast is Jonathan Jay. Jonathan has been an entrepreneur since dropping out of university at age 19. He has built businesses in publishing, digital marketing, adult education, and preschool education. He sold each of them and has acquired over 48 businesses in the past three years. He is also the author of a great book titled Business Buying Strategies. Well, Bela, growth is usually, as you know, a super relevant topic to a lot of entrepreneurs. And we've talked to a lot of them over the last several years. Some entrepreneurs, they're happy with just keeping a certain level of uh, the size of their business, certain customers, certain products, and they're not actually so focused on growth. They make a nice living for themselves. All is good. But a lot of the entrepreneurs we've talked to and the ones that we know, growth is important. Gaining more customers, building out new products and services, right? And trying to to build the business and, and make it scale. Um, but interestingly, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs that I know at least would never consider making an acquisition as a way to grow their business. They're more concerned with this organic growth or this growing kind of through your existing, um, uh, channels and your existing offers. So when you talk to me a little bit about Jonathan Jay, I'm really interested to hear um, his view and what you two have to say about this idea of using acquisitions um, as a way for entrepreneurs to grow their business. So I think let's get right to it. Sounds good, Mike. Let's dive in. All right. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, well, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Uh, so let me ask you a question. If you're at a social event, a, a non-work related social event, and you get introduced to someone and after the introductions, they ask you, oh, Jonathan, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Oh, that's a, it's a tough question to answer, actually. Um, it depends who I'm talking to. So the answer changes. So if I'm in a business setting uh, and uh, you know, the people in the room are, are business owners, they're entrepreneurs, um, then I, I go straight in with the I buy and sell businesses. And mm -hmm. I've been doing this for over 20 years. And, uh, and they immediately get that. Now, if I say that to someone who has no interest in business, their eyes just glaze over. <laughs> yeah. So um, I haven't yet found a way of introducing myself the, in the perfect way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question to start off with. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, buying businesses. So the majority of our listeners are entrepreneurs or, or would-be or want-to-be entrepreneurs, uh, and they own businesses. And, and a lot of them struggle with growth. And I think one thing that people don't think about is one way to grow your business is to acquire somebody else and bring them in to your business. Can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, so buying another business is probably the fastest way to get scale. And uh, scale is the uh, the buzzword of the of the moment, isn't it? Everyone wants uh, not just business growth. Everyone wants scale. And uh, it, it's hard work. I mean, you've got to run more advertising, hire more salespeople. There's trial and error. You gain some clients, you lose some clients. It's one step forward, two steps back. And sometimes you feel like you're not getting anywhere. And I've been there and I've done that. The alternative is to say, how can I double the size of my business 
with one acquisition. Mm. So you go hunting for a business that does something similar to you or complementary to you. You negotiate a deal to buy that business and voila, you are now the owner of a business that is twice the size. Now, clearly I've simplified it down tremendously, but that is the, the essence of the strategy. Yeah. So, you know, here in the States, the United States, uh, people think about raising venture capital to grow their business mm -hmm. uh, through through growth, not through acquisition, but fundamentally through growth. Yes. Uh, people think about, OK, if I'm going to buy somebody, I need cash. I, I, I need capital. So what are some ways that people can uh, use other people's money mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to buy those businesses? So, so first of all, that is the smart way of doing it. Use other people's money rather than your own, because it doesn't really matter how much money you've got. At some point, you're going to run out if you're spending it buying businesses. And the mistake or the misunderstanding that people have is that if a business is priced at $1 million, they've got to have $1 million to buy that business, to give to the vendor who can go off on the world cruise and uh, enjoy their retirement. However, the reality is that you can use other people's money, other forms of finance, rather than your own cash in order to buy that business. You don't have to pay for the business all up front. You can pay for it over a number of years. And if we combine different financing methods, it is entirely possible to buy that business without putting in a penny, a cent of your own money. And, uh, and that's what we aim to do. That's always the starting point. How can I buy this business without spending any of my own money? Because if I can keep my money in the bank, that's a really, really smart move. And it's especially smart if you don't have very much money in the bank, <laughs> because it means that there isn't a barrier to buying a business. Um, you know, some people like to think that you know, buying businesses should only be for people who can put hundreds of thousands of dollars into it. Skin in the game, we call it in the UK. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I, I don't think that's very fair. I think anyone should be able to buy a business. Yeah. And uh, so the other thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is sometimes you can get uh, owner financing. In other words, the current owner is willing to doesn't want a lump sum, oftentimes for tax reasons, <laughs> would rather take payments over time. Uh, and yeah. then and so there's there's it's not just a, a wheelbarrow full of cash on the day that the transaction closes. There are multiple ways of structuring it. Can you talk a little bit about various different ways of structuring an acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's start with this, this vendor financing or seller financing. Uh, th this is a really smart method because, as you say, not every seller wants all the money on day one. I mean, I think most people start off believing that's how a business is sold and they get all the money on day one. And you don't. That is not how it works in the real world, unless perhaps it's a, it's a very, very small business and it's just easier to, to make one single payment. I've sold businesses to private equity and private equity don't give you all the money. It's yeah. over sort of several, uh, you get something that you get the rest over several, several years. So this is a really smart structure because what you pay over several years can be paid out of the profits of the business. So the business itself finances its own acquisition. And if it's financing its own acquisition, the question I always ask, uh, my groups is if a business can finance its own acquisition, how many businesses would you buy? 
And then suddenly they realized, well, actually, I could buy any business, any number of businesses. If the finance is its own acquisition and I don't have to put my own money in, then there's nothing to stop me. Uh, and I think that's quite liberating for people. It's quite mm -hmm. an exciting thought when they realize that they can they can do that. So I believe every single deal should have an element of this deferred payment, this vendor financing. It also actually gives you protection. Um, occasionally, the owner of a business might not tell you the truth, the whole truth about their business. Uh, and I say that slightly tongue in cheek because I think it happens just about every single time. There is something that is missed out that, uh, yes. that you don't find out in due diligence. So if the contract is written correctly, then you have some power because you're holding back some of the money to pay over future years. And there may be, if the contract says this is the case, a way of reducing that amount to reflect the, the thing that they haven't told you. And usually the thing that they haven't told you uh, is some bills that haven't been paid, uh, a tax um, uh, uh, situation that hasn't been settled. So by paying over a period of time, you actually get a better deal because you are protecting yourself by keeping back some of the money and keeping the power over your side of the table. Now, that's one method of financing. Other methods involve financing against the assets of the business. If it's an asset-rich business, um, private equity-like businesses that have lots of assets, you know, properties and equipment and machinery and manufacturing, because it's very easy to finance those acquisitions because we can use all that property, real estate, equipment and machinery as uh, as collateral for the uh, for the loan. We can use invoice financing. So a business that sells to other businesses is going to raise its invoices at the end of the month. The customers have 60, 30, 60, 90 days to pay, but we can actually get an advance on those payments mm -hmm. yep. we can use that advance to give to the vendor and then that advance is paid down as the customers pay their bills so that's just a, a little snapshot of some of the most popular ways to finance an acquisition yeah so you mentioned due diligence and, and and sort of, you know, the process goes, I, I'm looking around for a business, I find one that I sort of like, and now I need to sort of understand what's in the closet or what's hidden and what's not hidden. Yes. Uh, how do you how do you go about that? And do you hire outside experts to help you do that? Yeah, you should always have someone on your team who understands the numbers of the business. Um, yeah, you know, I've been in business a long time, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say numbers are my are my strong point at all. I always I always hire the you know the the accountants, the CPAs, uh, to to do that for me. I'd rather pay them to do that and do it properly than me do it and do it very very uh, badly. Um, I was actually speaking to a uh, a client this morning, someone I'm helping uh, buy his first business, and he's in the self storage sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's already got three self storage units. And uh, he's found a fourth and we are putting together the deal to buy the fourth. And the due diligence that he's going to do on this is actually very limited. Uh, the reason why is 
the deal is an incredible deal. There's $300,000 of units. So these metal uh, units in the self-storage. Uh, he's only paying $90,000 for the business. Uh, he's paying $45,000 on day one. And $33,000 of that is actually cash in the bank that he's just going to take out and give to the vendor. So his risk is practically zero. Yeah. And he's getting corporate structure right. So if there was something that was absolutely terrible, it would never touch him uh, personally. And because he understands the sector, he can do less due diligence. I mean, he can sure. walk around and go, I can increase profits there. I can do this. I can do that better. So his risk is so, so low. Now, if someone's buying a business for the first time and they're new to that sector, they're new to that business, then you never skimp on the due diligence yeah. because that is where you find out where the skeletons are, are buried. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great point. I couldn't agree with you more in that, you know, a balance sheet is a balance sheet is a balance sheet. Um, however, each sector has its subtleties. It has its little nuances that are specific to that sector. And, and if you don't, and coming from the outside, you are not going to understand those. And yeah. you're going to make assumptions that are probably incorrect because you're not in that sector. So I, I think you're spot on about that, that piece of advice. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And, and I, I think that uh, sometimes people uh, buy a business too emotionally and uh, especially their first one. And they they want it so much, and they 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 want to tell everyone that they've that they've done it. And I always say, let's just slow down, and make sure we're buying the right business that does the right thing, that does what you want it to do. Is going to I mean, I, you should never buy a business that's uh, what we call distressed. You should never buy a business that's in trouble, that's losing money. I mean, people do it, and they turn businesses around and make a lot of money, but but they're very experienced. If you've never bought a business before, never touch a business that's losing money because as soon as you own it, it will just lose your money. <laughs> yes. So buy a business that's solid and profitable, and when the owner leaves, it will still be solid and profitable. So I'm going to say something which is potentially a little controversial, uh, but I think that what happens typically when people buy their first business is that they aim too low. They go for the business that uh, has uh, income of $100,000, $200,000, $300,000. I think those businesses are too small and too fragile. All it takes is to lose a couple of clients, lose yeah. a couple of staff, and it falls over. So I always say, even though it might stretch you out of your comfort zone, your first deal should be a million-dollar deal. So your first deal should, ha should have income of a million dollars plus because the chances are that team will have some stronger management. It will have better financials, better financial reporting. Um, one customer leaving won't sink the business. Two members of staff leaving the moment you buy it, you won't notice because it's got 25 members of staff. So I think larger businesses are going to be more successful acquisitions for the first time buyer. Yeah, yeah, that, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. So uh, if I'm thinking about buying a business, how do you think about the current management team? Um, you know, do you want them there? Do you not want them there? How do you sort of make those decisions? Yeah. So, so my rule of thumb is that I want the owner, the person who sold the business to me to leave immediately. 
I want there to be a handover, but I don't want that person turning up at the office every day. It's confusing. You know, yes. I thought you sold the business, but you still come in. Who's my boss? So I don't want that person involved. So I would put them onto a consultancy agreement that I may or may not use. But when it comes to management, you, you are buying the management as much as you are buying the business because you do not want to be managing that business yourself. You're buying a business. You're not buying a job. You don't want to turn up there every day. I mean, that's the last thing you want to do, because otherwise yeah, you, you'll end up with a desk and uh, um, yeah, you're, 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 you've suddenly got yourself a full time full time job. Uh, so what you want to be doing is buying a business where there are people who can run the business without you. And if at the moment it's the owner who's doing that, I always ask this question. I say to the owner, when you go on holiday, who runs the business mm. for you? And they say, yeah. oh, you know, Jeff, Jeff runs the business. He's been here since the start. He knows everything. So I'm now thinking, would, be would Jeff like a pay rise? And would Jeff like to step up? into uh, his uh, former boss's position and run that business on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, it, most times, most times it's yes. And that's that's what I want because uh, I, I'm buying the business to produce cash for me so I can do other things with my family, okay? So if it doesn't produce cash, I'm not interested in it. And if it produces cash without me ever going there or going there, once a month, then that, that is my ideal scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, let's, let's dive into that a little bit deeper. What are the characteristics besides cash flow? What are the characteristics you look for in an acquisition? In other words, you know, in, in simplest forms, you have a checklist, right? And, and yes. you go down this checklist. Okay. This is here. This is here. This is here. This isn't here. Yeah. Uh, so what does five, that look five, like? Five things. Yeah. So the, the, the first is I'm looking for a motivated seller. I am looking for a seller who considers that I am doing them a favor by buying their business. Mm. I need to solve their problem, whether their problem is retirement. The problem is ill health. The problem is family issues. The problem is stress. The problem is I just don't want to be in this business anymore. I want to. I've had enough. 20 years. I've had enough of it. Yeah. So I'm looking for a motivation. Now, if I meet someone who uh, folds their arms and looks at me and says, make me an offer, I might be interested in selling. Oh, I can't get out of the room fast enough. I, I don't want to have that conversation. I want someone who, when I ask them when they want to sell, they say yesterday. So number one's motivation. Uh, number two is, um, is simplicity of deal. I'm looking for a straightforward deal. I'm not looking for someone who's got 25 shareholders. Yeah, you know, half of them live in other countries. Some want to sell, some don't want to sell. I mean, there are so many good businesses out there. Let's first find a business where we can sit down with the owner, the owner and their spouse and do a deal around a table while we're having a cup of coffee. That's yeah. that's what I'm looking for. And um, I'm also looking for businesses that have potential. Now, quite often owners believe that part of their value is in that future potential. You can't blame them for thinking that, uh, but that's not what we're going to pay for. We might buy it because of the potential, uh, but we're not going to pay for the potential because we're the ones who are going to be putting the work in. It's going to be under our ownership. 
But yeah. if a business is too perfect, I don't know. I, I like a little bit of room to, to, to grow the business. For example, coming back to my self-storage guy with his first deal, he said, Jonathan, he said, I know exactly what he's doing wrong. He's doing this and he's doing this. And he can immediately see the potential uh, in the uh, in the business. I'm also looking for a structure that I can where I can buy the business without putting any of my own cash in. And because despite the fact that I'm entrepreneurial, I don't like risk. I don't want to take risks. So if I can buy the business without putting my own cash in by structuring in the days in the ways we talked about earlier, then that is going to be a huge advantage. And finally, and number five, um, I'm looking for an owner with realistic price expectations. Mm. Quite often, people believe that the business that loses money uh, is worth a million dollars because once you own it, oh, I won't lose money when you own it. And there's all these things that you can do. And I want a million dollars for it. And I won't accept a penny less. I mean, who can blame someone for not wanting to be a millionaire? I mean, that's what yeah, many business people want. But what they have to take a long, hard look at is, is this business worth a million pounds? So as soon as someone tells me how much they want for the business, I ask them how they came up with that number. Yeah. And I get them to explain to me the thinking. And quite often it's, well, I've got to pay off my mortgage. I want to buy a new car. <laughs> I want a holiday. Home. Well, that's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> it's, like, it's worth what it's worth now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not worth what money you want it to spend, uh, spend the money on. Yeah. So that's my five things. Yeah. Those are great. Great, great five things. Uh, let me ask you this question. Oftentimes, uh, people enlist the help of someone else to help them find the business. So I, I think about what you've been describing as someone who helps me understand whether this business has value or not. You're not really an agent. I'm hiring you to help me. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of sellers who hire agents <laughs> who, who want to use them to help sell the business, uh, various different names for those types of folks around uh, the States here. What are your thoughts about an agent involved in a process like this? Yeah. So, so, so there are agents, uh, business brokers, um, that, that mostly act for the people selling. Yes. There are a few buy side brokers, um, but not, uh, not that, uh, many certainly not at the small business uh, level so uh, i always say to people when you buy your first business the last place you want to go is to a website where there are hundreds of businesses for sale the reason why is because you're not the only person looking at the website that day and that means that uh, you've got competition now i i don't like competition because competition forces the price up and I want to get the very best deal possible because who wouldn't want to get the best deal possible? So what I uh, say to people who are buying their first business is that you want to go straight to the owner, straight to the vendor before they've listed it with a broker. When they've listed it with a broker, for the time being, it's going to be too late because the broker has told them they're going to get a million dollars. They think they're going to sell the business and become a millionaire. And I want someone who wants to sell their business but hasn't yet listed it with a broker. So they're in that, that middle space. And if you think about the first time business buyer, um, you know, they're building up their experience. I mean, everyone has to start somewhere. 
So to go and negotiate with a broker who's been doing it for 20 years, you're not going to come out of that, that negotiation very well. You might as well go and negotiate with a vendor who's never sold a business and you've never bought a business. The playing field is a little bit more level. Um, maybe the person selling has read some books about selling a business and there are many of them out there. Maybe the person buying has done some training on how to buy a business. So they're prepared uh, as well. But that's what you're looking for. Direct to vendor. That is the secret. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent advice. So uh, as I read your background, you started businesses, you've bought a lot of businesses, you've sold a lot of businesses. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of a non-business topic and, and that is sort of work-life balance. Mm. How, how do you, what are your thoughts on that and how do you kind of achieve that balance? Well, I, I've had terrible work-life balance for most of my <laughs> life. Um, so, uh, and, and with the benefit of hindsight, it's one of those things you probably don't notice when you're in it. But when you look back, you realize how it damaged relationships. Um, you know, your mm. health maybe suffered, your fitness suffered quite possibly. Uh, you know, we have a saying, you, you know, you burn the candle at both ends. You know, yeah. You're up early, you're up late. Um, and yeah, that, that, that takes its toll. I mean, it, you can do that in your twenties and thirties, but you, you cross the 50 barrier and it starts to, you know, it's, it's not as good for you. So during the pandemic, I bought 48 businesses wow. and it was crazy. People say to me, Jonathan, what's your advice on on buying 48 businesses during a pandemic. And I said, my advice is don't do it. I um, mean, it was, it was a killer. And I ended up in hospital uh, with um, severe stomach pains. I had a colonoscopy, which is not the most um, enjoyable pr procedure. Uh, and um, and I, you know, I was taking sleeping tablets for two years. I, I went to see a psychotherapist because I was just, I, I had, I had so many responsibilities. I had, you know, it was, it was just too, it, it actually sure. got to be too much for me. And I've always considered myself a very resilient person, but maybe I just wasn't looking after myself. So I would say you know, business is important because it can provide for you and your family. Business is fun because there's a challenge. There's that personal sense of success when you, when you get a winner. Um, but it's not the most important thing. At the end of the day, our health is, our relationships are. And if you've got to choose between between them, go for your health and your relationships. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the let me, but let me ask let me ask this question. You know, you made this comment that oftentimes when you're in the middle of it, you're not aware. You're not aware of the the abuse your body and your relationships yeah. are taking. Do you have some sort of warning signs that, that you know say, hey, hey, wake up here, buddy. You're you're heading down a road that's that's going to cause some challenges. Yeah, I think I think sleep is a great indicator. It's uh, for me, it's when I I'm in I'm in bed, I'm asleep for seven and a half, eight hours, and I wake up tired. Mm. And I and I and I wake up thinking about how long it is until I can go back to bed again. Yeah. And and that is my um my my test. Another thing that I found that I do is um the quality of the food that I eat goes down when I'm stressed <laughs> because I can't be bothered to make anything healthy and I end up eating junk food. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, too, 
those are those are two good two good uh, warning parameters. <laughs> Very yeah. nice. Yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the sell side now. So yes. let's say I'm interested in selling a business. What are things that I should be looking for in a buyer? What are things that I should be doing to sort of structure my business? Okay. So the unfortunate truth is that small businesses under $1 million in income don't have a huge amount of value unless it's a strategic acquisition sure. by someone who wants your client base, wants a location in your city and so forth. The fastest and best way of getting the best outcome in a sale, in other words, the most money, is to have a business that has scale and good, strong profitability. A business that has a management team so that the new owners can take over and uh, it doesn't fall apart because your genius has left the room. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and also, uh, and, and this is something that you know I've been good at and I've been bad at. And I've I've learned from I learned from my mistakes far more than I do from my successes. Yeah. You need really detailed, accurate financials. Mm. And as I said earlier, I'm not really a numbers person. I'm the big picture person. I'm the idea person. And uh, you need to find, and there may be different terminology in the US, but a CFO, a chief financial officer, a finance director, someone who can run the numbers for you. And the reason why is, first of all, the bigger a business gets, you, you can't operate it just by looking at the bank account to see if you've got enough money to pay the bills. You've got to have proper management accounts. The second thing is really accurate financials will save you tax. So it's going to save you, you know, whatever it costs to have that CFO. <coughs> you're going to be saving that in, 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 in tax. Sure. If you're going to raise money, then the lender is going to want to, to know uh, the details, the detailed financials. And when you come to sell a business, if the buyer trips you up on the financials, if you don't have numbers that are kickable, so numbers that you can you can shake and they still stand up to scrutiny, then you're going to sell your business for less than you would have done otherwise. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. In addition to the financials, um, I, I think one of the things that people often don't think about when they're starting a business or running a business is sort of the other agreements that you have in place, agreements with customers, right, to make sure they're rock solid, agreements with employees, intellectual property agreements to make sure those things are all tidy. Because any any savvy potential purchaser is going to crawl through all of those as well. Yes. So everyone who has a business that they think one day they will sell, and, and sometimes you think you'll never sell it until someone comes along and, and talks to you about buying it. But you should have uh, what we call a data room. Now, a data room can be a Dropbox file or a Google Drive where you start putting all of the documents. You put the um, the real estate leases for your office uh, building in there. You put all your employment contracts in there. You start collecting it all together in one place and finding out where the gaps are. Um, you, know, you may have handshake deals with suppliers. Put, get them all in writing. 
get everything together because one day when someone comes along and says, I'm interested in buying your business or interested in investing in your business, they will want to see all of that. And you haven't got time to go and find it then. So start doing it now and you'll always be prepared. Yeah, excellent. So Jonathan, you, you recently wrote a book. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book and who sort of the target audience is. Yeah, so it's called Business Buying Strategies. And it's for people who want to buy their first business, although many people who read it have already bought a business. They just want to buy the next ones in a smarter way. And it's one of those books that you can you can read in a weekend. Um, it explains everything without any jargon and takes you through step by step how to buy your first business. And also has lots of case studies uh, from my own experiences of businesses that I've bought and businesses that I've sold. So it's a very real life book. There's no theory, completely practical. Oh, very nice. Very nice. And I assume people can get it in all the normal places that you can purchase books. Yeah, ab absolutely. Or actually you can get a free copy off my website. Uh, so you can go to Amazon and pay for it, or you can go to the dealmakersacademy.com and get a free copy there. Oh, that's even better. Well, there you go. Uh, so the best way to contact you would be how, Jonathan, if someone's interested? Yeah, sure. Well, find me on LinkedIn. That's my um, that's my only social media platform. Um, and if you if you've enjoyed this conversation, I've got over 150 videos on YouTube. So just search Jonathan J on on YouTube, uh, and there's a, a, a very uh, interesting group of videos on there where you'll see me going to businesses that I've bought and talking to the staff and talking to the managers and solving problems. I mean, you'll see that my life was full of problems when I bought those 48 businesses. So you'll see behind the scenes of the deals. Oh, well, great. I will make sure all of that information is in the show notes. My last question, Jonathan, before we wrap up, uh, is there anything that I have not asked you uh, that I should have, or is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't covered yet? I, I think if I could just leave everyone with a with a positive thought, which is don't think that buying businesses is for other people. It's something that other people can do that but you can't do. I have helped people from all walks of life, from all around the world. You know, you can tell I've got a British British accent, but uh, yeah, I help people from all around the all around the world. And if you want to do this, you can do it. Anyone can buy a business. Yeah. Great. Great advice. Great way to wrap up this podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bela, well, that was a really interesting conversation. Let's unpack it a little bit. Um, let's start with what I think is an easy question for you. And in your experience, have you seen a general lack of awareness or a lack of motivations uh, by entrepreneurs about acquisitions? I certainly think that at sort of the individual entrepreneur level, there is this lack of consideration giving to, hey, maybe I can acquire businesses and I can put them together. Now, let's not forget, there is this whole private equity uh, industry or segment of the private equity industry that's focused on doing exactly this, where they where they buy related or semi-related businesses and they roll them up, they they grind out some efficiencies in them, and and then they try to sell them or do an exit. So this industry does exist, but it certainly does not exist at sort of the startup, you know, early stage business. 
As a matter of fact, most entrepreneurs would would are looking at it the other way. How can I get rolled up? <laughs> How can I get bought, <laughs> have an exit by some, some other big company? Yeah, have my payday. But I also, I think, so I, I really enjoyed my conversation with Jonathan because I, I think there is this great opportunity to, to sort of buy an existing business, to add to or to supplement your existing business, or even instead of starting one, you're, you're starting so much further ahead. And if you think about it, here's one of the things I've always thought about. You know, when you go to start a business, you go rent space, you buy furniture, you got to get computers, you got to get all the infrastructure stuff. You could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And after you spent those hundreds of thousands of dollars, you have nothing. The value of your business hasn't Still increased zero, one. I you don't have a customer yet. No, <laughs> dude, right. I live that. I live right. that. Right. Right. So you emotionally you feel like you're making progress emotionally you might feel like things are going well but you you haven't moved the ball down the field at all so when you do an acquisition right all of that stuff is already there and 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 so and you're getting it at usually a pretty good discount from that perspective uh, compared to buying new furniture and all that kind of stuff so i think there is some merit to this what do you, what do you think mike I, I totally agree and you know when i was in all my first time entrepreneurial activities, this wasn't even on the table. You know what I mean? It wasn't even a thought. And, you know, this whole idea of um, of kind of building this whole infrastructure out and hiring employees and all this stuff, and you still don't have on day one a single customer, right? It's, it's mind boggling to think about it. But the other half of this was how to do this without a lot of cash. And this was the other part that I think, and you know, maybe this is because new entrepreneurs don't have a track record, but realizing that, you know what, I can buy a business and I can finance that essentially with my own profits down the road by agreeing to some sort of um, structured payouts um, where you, you, you pay um, annually for several years or monthly for several years. And that's just something that's not aware. And okay, that seems really scary because the number's big, but when you really compare how much it costs you both to build out a business and to acquire customers, right? It may actually be way cheaper and way easier and way less headaches and way less likely to make mistakes to do the go on the acquisition. But I, you know, I totally agreed with what, what you and Jay were talking about or what Jay or Jonathan Jay said was that there's no, this isn't come to mind when people do learn about how to be an entrepreneur and how to start the business, you know, okay, either start from scratch or maybe franchise, right? But it's pretty rare that people talk about buying an existing business as your entry point into the entrepreneurial world. There are risks there, but there's certainly some benefits that are worth talking about anyways. Right, right. And, and I also think from a financing perspective, you have more options. When, when you want to start an, a, a new business, it's really difficult for you to go to sort of traditional lending institutions to get capital. You have to go to venture capital or angel investors. Uh, but if you're buying a business, there's assets there, right? So you you can you can collateralize Got collateralize right? those assets mm -hmm. assets and go to a bank and maybe get some financing. The other things to think about is oftentimes you can get owner financing, i.e., the current person who owns the business because there's great tax advantages for them to take payments over time as opposed to taking a lump sum payment. Oftentimes, you know, and they understand this very well. So, so you know, you can use tax regulations to your advantage in this case um, because that person doesn't want a big lump of cash. They want, they'd like payments spread out over time. 
So there are those types of opportunities there. Totally, totally agree. Um, what did you think about kind of the important aspects of when you start to look for a business to buy? Because you talked a lot about that and the whole process. And I thought there was a lot of interesting things there. How do you, how do you unpack that? Yeah, so I think, you know, the general category of, as in the venture world that we call it due diligence. And, and that is sort of digging through things. And, and my one sentence summary of what due diligence is, is it prevents surprises after the purchase, right? So once you buy the business, you don't want any surprises. So you got you to crawl through the books, uh, financial books, but you also need to understand, you know, leases and other commitments the business may have, contracts with existing customers. You also need to understand intellectual property and make sure all of those things are in order. And lots of times in small businesses, these things are a mess. Uh, so you, you got to straighten those out, but you got to dig through them. And this is a place where if, if you're not skilled in that, you don't know what to look for, where a good attorney can help you, right? An attorney, not, not, not the real estate, not the person who's doing real estate transactions, uh, residential real estate transactions, but an attorney who's a business attorney and understands these types of things. They can, they can be a great help and sort of uncovering these various different uh, due diligence uh, areas that need to be investigated. Yeah, I think the, go ahead. And, and, and your accountant and your finance people will help you as well. There's elements sure. of due diligence that are on the legal side, elements right. that are on the, so usually I like to say, put together a team, right? Have your lawyer number one, have your accountant person being helping you understand the books, Right. And again, you mentioned this, but each industry is different and has different ratios and, and different ways of reporting uh, revenue and income and costs. Um, so you got to know that uh, technology, if there's a tech business, is you need to know what systems they're running and how they might integrate with your own systems. Um, and then the people side, again, the HR looking at, um, you know, what kinds of um, uh, incentives are currently in place. Uh, for people to stay and, you know, what's the, you know, how are you going to retain key people, all of these things. So it's really a team, I think, um, that will help you do the due diligence. Um, and it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to be super expensive, but you just have to get the right inputs, I think, and the right people that'll give you the advice when you're an entrepreneur. Companies have a team usually of specialists that do this, right? When, right. when you know, when IBM or GE would make an acquisition, I'm sure, right? There was a team with people from all these different areas that would go in and take a look. Um, but as an entrepreneur, solo entrepreneur doing this, you don't have that team. So you got to use your, you got to use your, yep. your lawyer and your, your accountant and your HR person, um, that maybe doesn't work for you, but you can, you can use as a, as a contractor or a consultant to help you do the, uh, understand what you're looking at. You know, I think one of the more challenging things to figure out is sort of the existing culture, uh, and the existing leadership team in that business you're thinking about acquiring. And one of the reasons that's often difficult is because the owner doesn't want to disclose to the employees that they're thinking of selling the business, because oftentimes that'll cause uneasiness and, and, and all sorts of things. So how can you find out some of these things, you know, without existing employees knowing one tactic that I've seen used very well is, is the employer hires you. And I put that in air quotes, right? It doesn't really hire you to be a consultant to come in and sort of help the current owner, but uh, run the business, right? So you can say, he's mm -hmm. the, you're, I'm gonna come in, let's say you're selling a business, Mike, and, and I'm gonna come work with you for the next six months, and I'm gonna work- right, coming in a day a week to give me some advice I'm coming advice a day a week to give you advice, right? right. I'm, I'm, I could be a business consultant, I could be a strategy consultant, I could be any of those things. 
but it's a way for me as the potential buyer to come into your business without setting off any alarms in that existing business and with the existing employees that someone's thinking of selling it. And then it gives me a good idea of what, what's really behind the curtain uh, and what the existing culture is and the leadership team. And the reason I bring up culture is it's really, really difficult to change culture. Uh, so if, if it's not a culture that you're comfortable with or a culture that, that uh, maybe you're bringing this business into your existing business, right? Then you, you get really got to think that through because that's a very, very difficult thing to change an existing culture. Uh, leadership teams a little easier to change, but you have to have some assessment of, you know, who you want to keep, who maybe needs to move on, uh, what the quality of the existing leadership team is. So this notion of being a consultant one day a week or whatever is a great way to sort of get entree into that. And you can work out an agreement with the existing owner uh, that, you know, if it doesn't work out, okay, it doesn't work out, but you know, that's, that's a mechanism that you can use. Yeah, I agree. When you have a motivated seller, you can be creative like this and find ways to, right. to, to, to facilitate from both sides, the, um, the deal. I, you know, and I, I totally agree. You can, you can throw out the leadership team if you want, when you start, but there's risks with that after you make an acquisition and the culture doesn't always change. Sometimes the leadership team really does drive That's the right. culture, but a lot of times it's already entrenched with the people who work there and the change of leadership only can make a sometimes makes a small difference. Um, and, and this is the thing, you know, it's one thing to buy a company. And I think, like you said, there's two different approaches here. If you're buying it for the first time uh, and this is your first company, Okay, that's one thing. But when you're merging two companies together, you're buying a company and you're integrating it into your existing company. This is where on paper you do the due diligence. Okay, looks fine. But actually integrating the two together, integrating your information systems, making sure your key employees that you acquired don't leave. Even more importantly, making sure you don't piss off the employees at your existing company or they leave, right? That the retention happens, the manufacturing systems agree, your customers, the new customers don't leave because you've changed their customer service agent. Um, all these bad things can happen. So by doing due diligence, what you're doing is really making not only what the business is worth, but a roadmap on how you, what, where you need to pay attention into integrating these two companies, what kind of timeline, what kind of budget you're going to need. And that's a really important part that, that you and Jonathan didn't talk about, but I think that's really, that's the second part of the due diligence is what's it worth and what are going to be my key challenges when I'm integrating these two businesses together, my existing business and this new one that I'm acquiring. Yep, exactly. Good points, Mike. Excellent points. Yeah. So yeah, I thought I thought, but I thought it was really interesting, and I like the idea of identifying the right time of seller at the right time, right? Is really critical, um, and the idea of um, of trying to make sure that the deal is simple enough that you're paying the right price. I think this idea he was right. Like you're getting into a bidding war with other people, you're almost always going to overpay. When the deal is overly complicated, you're almost always going to pay in the long run, right? That these things kind of hurt you. So I think some of his rules that seem kind of common sense and simple are really important to making sure that um, the deal is something you can live with um, at the right price and and that um, you get what you pay for, essentially. So I, I thought yep. it was really interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Time to wrap this yeah. one up, Mike. Well, I have one last question for you, Bailey. Yeah, sure. It's a little personal. You can defer if you want, my friend. But um, I thought his thoughts on work-life balance were really interesting mm. that he talked about at the end, right? And I mean, what have you learned over the various stages of your career? And what advice maybe you have for our listeners about work-life balance? Huh. 
Well, I, I, I will tell you, uh, it has changed for me over time. So, which probably is not unusual, right? There, there were periods of, of time in my life where uh, I think if you asked my family, my work-life balance was out of whack <laughs> and I spent way too much time at work. Um, and there are other times where it was more in balance. So I don't think it's a, it's a steady state thing, at least for me it wasn't. It had its hills and valleys, so to speak, um, depending upon which of those two things you like. Uh, somebody once said something to me years ago, and they said that uh, nobody on their deathbed ever said, gee, I wish I spent more time at work. So, you know, I, I sort of remembered that. And someone told this to me, like, maybe maybe they saw me running around like a crazy man. <laughs> and that's why, because it was an older person that sort of shared that with me. So I think this is different for everyone. It sort of depends on what your situation is. Uh, you know, when we had kids, uh, you know, the work-life balance needs to be different. If you have kids in a family, your work-life needs to be different than if you're, you know, dual income, no kids couple, right? It, it, it can be different. Or if, if, if you don't have a significant other in your life, it can be different. So this is something everyone needs to answer for themselves. But I think the most important thing here is, is to make sure you visit it every once in a while and think about it consciously, you know, uh, go sit on the beach for a couple hours a day and uh, uh, once a year and think about it. Uh, is it right for me? Because oftentimes there are things like this ca that can make you think your life is miserable and it takes you a while to figure out what it is. And it's because maybe your work-life balance is out of whack. So anyway, that, that's my sort of rambling answer to that. What what are you, you've been around a while, Mike. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know. Um, I guess the only thing, I totally agree with everything that you, you said. There's one size doesn't fit all in terms of what you're yeah. like, what's satisfying to you and, and, and what makes your life fulfilling. Um, but I guess the, the thing that I'll add is um, you can't take care of others if you're not taking care of yourself. Um, and you two Good kind of point. talked about this, but I think your own mental and physical health and they're the two in my view, I'm one of these people that believes your physical health and medical medical mental health are pretty closely related. Um, and that if if you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be a good manager. You're not going to be good to your customers. And most importantly, you're not going to be good to your friends and the family and the people that are important around you. And the other thing about kind of dying, right, and your own mortality, right, is that um, I, I don't want to be known as somebody who is an incredibly successful X, Y, or Z business person, college professor, whatever, but boy, he was an asshole to his friends and his family. Right. right. Um, I, for me, and again, everybody's different for me, I much want to be, oh, Mike was a really great guy and he was somebody who cared about others and helped others and made the world a better place. I don't care about what he was as a professor, as a business owner or whatever. Right. That's hopefully that's there too. But um, you know, wh what do you want your impact to be? And I love the idea of what you said is spending a little bit of time each year, whether you do it, I recommend people do it on their birthday or do it on new year's or right. Something like that, but do a reflection. Uh, like, I like this word you use kind of consciously think about it, um, and do a reflection on where you're at, where you want to be. And what, if there's a gap between where you want to be and where you're at, what few small steps can you take, um, right. this year to, to make a difference there? And I, and I think that, even though we like to talk about being a successful entrepreneur a lot, right? And having a successful business, I think it's most important that you're a successful human in the greater terms and being an entrepreneur yeah. is one part of 
being a, a human that makes the world a better place. But yeah. I don't know. Everybody's different, you know? You know, I think I think this notion of making conscious decisions is 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 a really important thing. So I just want to spend another second on or two on it. Oftentimes I had found myself asking myself, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> and and it's because just a bunch of things happened and and you make these decisions, but they're not conscious decisions. They're almost unconscious decisions. And and I don't know how to describe it much better than that, but I think it's important to 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 say, okay, this is a this is an important decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to turn left or am I going to turn right? Um, or or reflect, taking that time to reflect back because oftentimes you end up in places that you go, how did I get here? And 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 by reflecting back on it, you you can then say, gee, I I I shouldn't have made these decisions. I should have made different ones, or I I could have made better ones, uh, or they're great for me. It, it, they, they can, any of those options are good, but I think this notion of conscious decision making is really, really important. And, and I'm, I'm sure there's books written on it. I don't know much about it because I clearly I'm not articulating it very clearly, but I just think it's an important thing for people to consider. Yeah, you are. Maybe that's a good uh, podcast topic for the, the, the coming months, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds cool. good. Great. All right. What do you think? Should we wrap this up? Sounds good. All right, listeners, thanks for joining us today. We hope that you found this episode as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. As always, if you have questions about what we've discussed or uh, anything that we talked about today, please feel free to get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And please do follow the podcast uh, if you haven't already. So until next time, uh, see you soon, Mike. Thanks, Bela. Always great to talk with you from over here in Münster, Germany. See everybody next time. Okay, stop recording.